Dotnet Rocks, episode 1098, with guest Bill Wagner. Recorded Friday, January 30th, 2015. And then the guy hits himself in the head with a shovel. I know that line. <laughs> That's one of those things you're sitting around watching some crazy YouTube thing and there's some idiot out on skates or whatever and he's hitting himself in the head with a shovel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your comment was, and then the guy hits himself with a shovel. I think it was a, a, a comment on the credibility of the video as a whole. Yeah, probably. Like, there was an editorial decision. What were we doing watching that anyway? <laughs> it was costing us all IQ points. That's right. <laughs> Serious brain cell def uh, defamation. <laughs> hey, man, I got some better know framework. Let's, all right, we'll do some of that. I'll do some of that. Tell me, what do you got? Well, I remember doing a DNR TV with uh, uh, Venkat Sabramaniam a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this book called uh, .NET Gotchas. Right. And so I went, I remember one was in, extremely interesting to me and helpful. And that was about uh, exception handling. Uh -huh. And if you throw, you know, catch EX and throw EX, that can be a problem. <laughs> because you don't get the line of code where it actually, uh, where the problem was. Right. In the stack trace. So I found somebody who explained this really well. And uh, pulled it out of Yuval Lowy's iDesign uh, C-Sharp Coding Standard Guidelines Best Practices, uh, number 17, the rule in the coding practices. So anyway, uh, somebody wrote a blog post about this way back in 07, but I thought, you know, it's one of those fundamental things that everybody should know. So go to right. tinyurl.com slash throw gotcha. And, uh, you know, you can start just by saying throw, you know, catch and throw instead yep. of catch exception ex and throw ex you can start there but then uh, it gets more complicated so just uh, it's not something that i can explain in five seconds or 30 seconds so just go read it good error handling is not a trivial thing but nope. bad error handling <laughs> bad error handling yeah that's that's, that's a whole other thing yeah it should be helpful yeah yeah and try not to make the situation worse right yeah rule number one stop digging yep all right, Richard, who's talking to us? Nice one. I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1029, and that is the one we did with Mr. Wagner uh, back in August. We were talking about C-sharp 6 as well. I figured it was time for a revisit. Uh, but there's this great comment from Aaron Glover. This is from a few months ago, and he says, and it's lengthy but worth it. Uh, Hi, guys. Another greatest show as usual. Uh, a little bit. This might be a little bit off topic, but it's also a bit of a predictable rant. Um, where's the love for VB.net? It seems that most discussions of .NET Rocks of late fail to acknowledge C-Sharp's fraternal twin, VB.NET. Anecdotally, F-Sharp gets a more frequent mention on than VB.NET on DNR. Yep, that's true. Uh, as a developer who writes in both VB.NET and C-Sharp and who loves both, I still levitate towards VB.NET as my language of first choice. I do, however, and I don't think I'm the only one, sense a huge stigma attached to VB.NET developers from within the development community. Mm, yeah. Probably. Uh, it is a common thread of discussion amongst VB.NET community that C-Sharp gets more attention, C-Sharp gets more features, and as a result, VB is unfairly cast as a second-class language. 
I don't know that that's true. No, I don't think so. Not from a feature perspective, but from a sample perspective, definitely. Yeah, I I love. Obviously, I started in VB before yeah. VB.net, and the you know early .NET Rocks shows were all where there was a lot more you know VB.net versus C sharp discussion back yeah. then. Well, the reality is Microsoft codes in C C plus plus and embrace C sharp, and so VB.net samples are an afterthought, and it's yeah. frustrating. And yeah. I just didn't want to be frustrated anymore, so I I switched. Yeah, once you get comfortable with both it ends up the c sharp is the path of least resistance like i've got a goal to get to and you know the least amount of effort is is the way to go and that you know like i said c sharp and vb.net are so similar mm. it becomes really difficult to uh, to make a lot of difference let me finish aaron's comment here because there's a okay. couple of interesting bits in this yeah uh at least one job application was rejected by a prospective employer despite my considerable c sharp experience and meeting all of the other stated job requirements I found out that along the proverbial grapevine that this was due to negative perceptions that the project manager have of VB.net developers. Huh. So because he put VB.net on his resume, he's now a VB.net developer. It doesn't matter that the guy's been to the moon and, you know, and has disassembled nuclear bombs. He's a VB.net developer. Huh. Uh, funny. That's terrible. Uh, yeah. There you go. I don't know that I'd want to work there. No, nope, I would I certainly either. not work for that guy. Definitely. Because, you know, dumb's contagious. Uh, (laughs) My understanding was that Microsoft, under the leadership of Anders Heilsberg, okay, now Microsoft is not led by Anders Heilsberg, but C-sharp certainly is, has made a commitment to, A, not kill VB.net, and B, the two design teams would be joined together to co-evolve the languages. Yeah, that's pretty true. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much exactly what's happened. Despite the above commitment and numerous enhancements to the VB.net language, it still feels unloved by Microsoft. I don't think that's true either. I think you feel it's unloved by Microsoft. Yeah, definitely that's true. Yeah. Many features, documentation, project templates are almost always delivered later than those for C Sharp. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Uh, This is further illustrated by still absent project templates for universal applications. Uh, Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And VB.net is a first-rate language. Yeah, you don't need to tell me. I believe you. Uh, And I agree. It yeah. can do just about anything that C Sharp can do, and just about any other language can do, at least for the arena it was designed to play in. And it can do stuff C Sharp can't do, like XML literals. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah, which is a really great tool. That's great. If VB.net developers are using high frequency and density of design patterns in these VB implementations, the results will be as sound as similarly styled implementations in C Sharp. Yes. If uh, VB.net developers leverage new language features of .NET, VB developers will be as productive as C Sharp developers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, given you know the things. I think the challenge with VB.net consistently is, as you said, the documentations and samples lag behind. That's exactly right. And so they, there's no doubt about it that that happens. And here's the tougher question that she asks. Can VB.net surpass C Sharp in any markedly demonstrable way? Probably not. C-sharp and VB.net, for better or worse, are basically fraternal twins. And, you know, one seems to have some advantages. Well, what do you mean by surpass in terms of features? Well, that's a good question. Because, like I said, you know, there are features that VB has that C-sharp doesn't have and vice versa. But mostly they're VB features. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and it just passes the question then... uh, do you think VB.net should continue? Maybe it should just be dropped. I don't, you know, here's the thing. It should never be dropped, but you have to make the decision for you. And that's, that's the decision that I came to. 
also, you know, I'm a public speaker and, uh, you know, there's a lot more C-sharp developers out there than... That's what your developers. audience wanted too, right? And so that's what the audience wants. And it was an easy decision for me, actually. Yeah. But, you know, you, you'd need to make decision for you, not based on what you think Microsoft thinks or what you think other people thinks. Get out of their heads, man. Just get into <laughs> your head. But, you know, let's push against this harder. You know, Aaron, I think Aaron's too polite. Let's spin it another way. Okay. Is VB.net the new Fox Pro? They're not going to kill it. <laughs> They're just going to wait for everybody to die. Uh, you know, I did those those questions are just silly. Seriously, I mean, well, they, you know, they still have VB runtime for VB six in Windows. Yeah, so you know, well, and yeah, what does "kill it" mean per se? Yeah, they're not going to pull it out of the CLR. No, no way. That that wasn't the point of the CLR. Yeah, they they can't stop shipping it per se. No, the real question is: Would they stop adding? If will language features start appearing more and more in C sharp, just not appear in VB.net? Will it go into maintenance mode? We'll keep it running on the new OS, but we're not adding anything to it. I don't think so. I don't. I have no evidence of that whatsoever either, my friend. So. Yeah. However, Aaron. That, that said, um, do what is good for you. If you don't, if you like being frustrated continue doing it but nice. for me it was a matter of frustration and uh you know life gets pretty easy when you just you use c sharp and and if you know vbnet c sharp is not a big deal it's and really aaron not. closes by saying carl i can't wait for the shiny music to code by cd to arrive on my doorstep which by the way is happening very soon oh nice yes it was almost done almost huh? done uh, Aaron, thank you so much for your comment. I think you noticed it stimulated a little conversation between myself and my mm -hmm. friend. Mm -hmm. And I suspect Mr. Wagner has some comments as well. Uh, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest, Bill Wagner. Bill's technical time is spent between curly braces, primarily with C Sharp. His technical areas of focus are C-sharp.net and TypeScript. His non-coding passion is to help organizations build effective, high-functioning developer teams. Bill is the author of the best-selling Effective C-sharp, now in its second edition, and more Effective C-sharp, Son of Effective C-sharp, <laughs> Revenge of Effective C-sharp. He has created live lessons on async programming in C-sharp and C-sharp puzzlers. His articles have appeared in MSDM Magazine, the C-Sharp Developer Center, Visual C++ Developer's Journal, Visual Studio Magazine, ASP.NET Pro, .NET Developer's Journal, and more. He's written hundreds of technical articles for software developers and actively blogs about technical and business topics at thebillwagner.com. He's also a regional director for Microsoft, the president of Humanitarian Toolbox, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the response capabilities of lead disaster response organizations. I've heard of that. Through use of a toolbox of community-built and maintained, prepackaged, rapidly deployable, open-source solutions. Welcome, Bill. Hey, guys. How are you doing today? That's a thick paragraph there, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I You're a pretty prolific guy. You know, it is one of those where you keep looking at it and you go... You know, this reads okay, but then when you actually read it out loud, it's just too long. Well, but, you know, you although those things are important, I think, so. Yeah. Yeah. But that's half the show. No. Yeah. <laughs> between, Thanks. Between Thanks. that and your email, you know, yeah. done. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's go right into that email. Sure. Um, um, yeah, and I'm glad you were listening, Bill. I, I picked it thinking, yeah, Bill will be thinking about this, too. 
Yeah, and I think I remember responding to them when it first came out. I think there, you know, if you look at the language teams, there is a lot of love for VB. Um, if you go to the GitHub site and there's a page that has language feature status for both VB and C Sharp, and when you look at that, there's basically three different columns or uh, three different ways they express what's being done. There's things that already exist and being added to the fraternal twin language. Things that were added, things that are planned, and something that we're not sure what we're going to do, or this it makes no sense in this language. And VB's getting pretty much a, about as much love as C-sharp. Yeah. You know? And in fact, some of the, part of why C-sharp has more new features is there's more things that C-sharp is getting that VB already had in this release. Yeah. So I think that's good. Um, his other two points I think are really interesting. It's it's always been true that for whatever reason, other non-language teams don't write or put out the samples in more than one language. And the F-sharp people, the F-sharp community is complaining about that quite a bit too. Right. And I, you know, maybe the VB community can step up here and, you know, now that it's open source, add some of their own samples, you know, um, we're getting some really nice feedback on that and some uh, diagnostic projects that are going on, which we can talk about a little bit later in the show. And we're getting some of the VB people to step up and write code analyzers and code fixers for uh, VB specific idioms. And I think that helps too. That, that shows that there's still a, a very vibrant community out there with VB. Yeah, there sure is. I think one of the things that you have to do as a VB developer is learn how to read C Sharp. And learn how to convert and, it, you know? You know, I think there's there's a sample someplace, and I couldn't find it this quick. I may have to look for it later, and I'll put a comment on this show, that built in Roslyn, you can take VB and convert it to C-sharp, and C-sharp and convert it to VB. You know, and now using the Roslyn APIs, where you've got the syntactic and semantic trees, it'll convert the comments, it'll convert everything, and idiomatically do a really good job. Mm, that's cool. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah, and, and you just wonder. I, I wonder if open sourcing is exactly what it needs. I mean, you know, to, if there's a great community behind it and they rally around it, they can make it what they want it to be. Right, and I think the other one that I'm really wondering what's going to happen with um, having open sourced it. Um, you know, here's where C Sharp has a bit of an advantage going into things like universal apps. Is C Sharp is an ECMA standard. Uh, the standard's currently being updated, but it is an ECMA standard. So a company like Xamarin can make a C-sharp compiler, and you know Microsoft can't stop them. That's one of the ECMA rules. Here's a standard. Follow the standard, and you know you, there, there's language about there's possible licensing fees or whatever, but they can't be exorbitant, and you can't sue somebody for implementing the standard. Right. Right. So that means Xamarin could sit there and build these tools for iOS and Android and universal apps using C-sharp and have the protection of ECMA around it. Um, VB isn't an ECMA standard. And I don't know if there are, you know, going all the way back to Alan Cooper, some patentable stuff inside the VB runtime. Uh, Carl, you'd know that better than I would if any of that is still in play. But I'd now that it's open source, I think Xamarin can grab that VB Roslyn compiler and start moving that forward too so that should help there i hope but again not a lawyer yeah i don't i don't know what the deal is with that i i was never in i never looked into it so 
I'm completely in the dark as far as the legalities of it. Right. So. Oh, well. But, uh, you know, it is a great language, and any time that I need to do any serious XML processing, I always pull out VB and write a, write a DLL and then load it into my uh, my solution. This, it just works great. So. No, I think that was, that's definitely one of the big features that VB has that C-Sharp uh, does not have and probably will not get. Yeah, probably not. I mean, it's a syntactic thing, right? And that's right. what VB has always been about, rapid app development. Well, in the same way that it's not going to get F-sharp features either, right? It's a different language. It's got its own things. Right. And and one of the other big keys where VB is more expressive than C-sharp is the link queries. There's oh. a lot more keywords that VB has to use the query syntax, where in C-sharp you have to go to the method call syntax. Hmm. Things like first and take and skip, I think, are keywords in VB. Yeah, I know. Uh, first is in enumerable, isn't it? Um, it is, it's, but you have to use a method call in C sharp. So you'd have to do, you know, oh, um, sequence dot where whatever dot select dot first. Yes. Whereas in VB, I think the syntax is in, you can do a from something in sequence where whatever select something first. I think is what the syntax. I don't. Yeah, Don't so it's VB little, enough to let it roll off my tongue. Yeah, it's a little different but and yeah, probably a little less uh, ceremony. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I always liked about VB. It is. It's definitely a very expressive language. And I, you know, I, I wish it was the dominant language because I like it a lot. But, you know, li- life is what it is. You know, you don't, you, you know, you sit and complain about it or you just, you know, okay, whatever. Well, the other right. part of this is that the goal wasn't a language anyway, right? It's I'm trying to get some work done. Yeah. I'm trying to build some software, and I, I really don't care. How many times have we changed languages over the years? Like, it just doesn't matter. You use a language that gets you quickly to your path. Yeah. Right. Very much so. All right. So let's talk about C Sharp. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So there's been some changes since August. Yes, yeah, there yeah. Are. We because we did a whole show on this. It should be good, right? Like <laughs> they're still they're still up to stuff. Well, and of course, right after we recorded that show, the team dropped primary constructors. Yeah. Which, and you know, I think it's going to make sense. Um, one of the things that's also kind of a teaser. We can chat a bit more at the if we have time at the end. Is last week or earlier this week the team. Uh, Mads published the first design notes for starting to look at C sharp seven. Hmm. And one of the, one of the possible themes there, it would bring back syntax like primary constructors, huh. but, but possibly in a full blown pattern matching or, um, uh, tuple like implementation or record type implementation, which. What, what was the explanation for dropping it in the first place? And first of uh, all, what, what was a primary constructor? Okay, so primary constructor was a way to simplify building the kind of data transfer objects we have to build a lot now. Yeah. Where I want to just construct this thing. I'm always going to give it the properties for each of the properties inside the object. Got and it. I'm probably just going to put it on the wire or take it off the wire. Got it. So um, so you have a, a DTO and it's got a first name, last name, this, that, and the other thing, all these properties. Instead of having to write a constructor that takes all those parameters and sets the properties, it just works. It just works. It just right. gives you that constructor for free. You don't have to write it. Which to me seems like a good idea. 
Yeah, it's not for free, but it's a lot cheaper than we have to write today. Okay. And, you know, the, the, so the two reasons were, one, there was a lot of downstream testing that they were worried about the schedule is what was officially published. The other reason I do think is that um, Neil Gafter and some people took a branch of Rosalind and started to implement um, pattern matching syntax, and it might not have flown really well with the existing primary constructor syntax. Okay. Interesting. I found Mad's blog post. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. And yeah, you can see him just talking through this cost versus risk. And so when when you talk about all those things in motion at once, it's like, oh, risk goes up, risk goes up, risk goes up. Yeah. And then now you're worried about your deadline. Right, right. And that's the other feature that got dropped at about the same time was declaration expressions, which start to get some very, very strange, very, very complicated edge cases. Uh, hmm. So a declaration... Declaration expression is, say, we're calling int.tryparse. And instead of having to declare, you know, string or int answer, and then say, if int.tryparse, you know, some string, comma, out answer, you can declare that variable as part of the method call. So I could do int.tryparse, some string, comma, out var answer. And that looks like that feels really nice until you start dealing with all kinds of edge cases like what happens in a while loop? What's the scope of this thing in an if or a then clause? Uh. What happens if it's a do loop and you actually want to use it inside the loop, but you declare it at the bottom of the loop? Is it in scope, out of scope? Does it get hoisted to the containing scope? And it starts to just blow up. So looking at that, you know, one of the, yeah. one of the reasons behind dropping it was, you know, they pulled a lot of the people who were watching the C sharp six come out, you know, how do you think this would work? And it was about half and half on two different possibilities, which kind of says maybe this feature isn't quite ready yet because it's almost split equally. And, you know, any way we pick half of the community is going to be confused when they see the code. Yeah. And you sort of look at the education barrier there too. And I, None of these are critical features, right? This is all really syntactic sugar about making life easier for doing things. Right. But I think, you know, a lot of what we like in, in our languages is the syntactic sugar that makes our life easier. Absolutely. Right. Otherwise, we would all be programming machine language. Right. Right. So, <laughs> so I think they are, you know, while you're right that, you know, none of these is the killer feature that makes C Sharp 6 or VB14, you know, important. They are all things that we'd love to have. So, you know, both of those two, I think, come back, or at least a discussion about them comes back for the next version. Right. Um, so, that, you know, there's there's been nothing committed to what happens after C-sharp 6. But, yeah, you know, but, it's, but it, you yeah. know, just because it didn't make the cut this time doesn't mean it doesn't make the cut next time. There will be another version. Right. You know, and sometimes you can see that, you know, let's as we start talking about one of the other big changes, um, String interpolation now went through yet another little bit of a design iteration. So if you've been watching closely, string interpolation is now on its fifth version of the syntax. Wow. Whoa. But, you know, that's all been in pre-release, right? And there were legitimate concerns about each of the previous ones. And now there's a lot of, lot of coalescing behind this one. It really looks like what we're really going to want. It's, pretty, it's clear. It's, it's concise. You know, in C sharp, if you start the format string with a dollar sign instead of the positional parameters of zero, one, two, three in a string dot format, 
you give it the variable names or expressions and it just works. And the key thing that was added now in the last CTP is there's a way that that interpolated string comes out as an I formatable so that you're able to put um, localization and localized formatting or specify a particular culture in a format string, in a, an interpolated string. So that, that problem now gets solved. Interesting. Yep. Right. So that makes it pretty important, uh, you know, if you're trying to build internationalized software. Yeah. Which I still don't think we talk about enough. And, and every time I do dig into it is stunningly difficult. You know, that's been my experience. Uh, almost every project I've ever started, you know, the project managers are like, oh, yeah, we're going to internationalize this. And then we budget how much it's going to cost. And then they say, oh, no, we're not going to internationalize this. So I think that is that is still a very difficult problem. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, one of those things where you had and nobody I haven't met anybody who ever decided off the bat we're going to internationalize this because it's just such uh, a hill to climb. It's like, well, let's just get the feature set, figure out what's important, and then we'll talk about what languages you want to get to. You know, the only the only project I ever worked on where internationalization was important right out of the gate was when I did uh, some children's games for some of the Disney properties in the nineties, right? It, they had a list of languages they wanted it to go out in day one. And so they, I mean, yeah, known market, known product. You could see yep. that being more likely. Right. Yes. Very I, much so. Yeah. That, yeah. Very, very challenging development problem. No two ways about it. Mm -hmm. So is that all we know about the latest incarnation of C sharp six is the stuff they've cut? No, no, no. So I mentioned the changes to uh, string interpolation. Yeah. So in, in one sense, though, there, is, there are no new features since the last time we talked. Oh, wow. Well. Nor should there be, really. Right, right. Yeah, it's okay. So the other things that have changed a little bit is there's a syntax change on using static classes. Um, when we talked in August, you would say something like using system.math, right? And then all of the methods that were part of the system.math class you could just call as functions without prefacing with the class name. So I could just call square root instead of math.squareRoot, or I could call, um, you know, instead of math.floor, I could just call floor and so on. So there's been a couple different changes into how that feature works now. Uh, the first one is instead of just saying using system.math, you have to say using space static system.math. Hmm to reference that this is a class and not a namespace. So that disambiguates that a little bit. Uh, the second thing is, as people started playing with the feature, its original design is using a class would only work for a class that was declared as a static class, like system.math, okay? There are a lot of classes in the .NET framework that have a lot of static methods that we'd like to use, but aren't static classes. Right. System.string is a good example. Sure. Uh, um, a lot of the very early classes in the .NET framework before static classes were a thing also have this same capability or the same feature where all the methods are static, but it's not a static class. Some of the logging classes have that. So now using static class name will, or fully qualified class name, will work for those classes as well. So I can use static system.string and then I can just call format and I'm actually calling string.format. 
Okay. Yeah, that so helps. It, kind of expand- yeah. it does. It does. It's expanded that one out a little bit. Um, the other one that's a change that I don't think is in, or it's not in the current preview, but I think is still coming, is a syntax change to exception filters. Uh, the current syntax would say catch some exception type, and you'd say if and some expression. And I believe that the team is going to be changing that to uh, when as the keyword instead of if. Hmm. <laughs> That's subtle change, unless you're typing, in which case is annoying. Right. But I think it's more just try to disambiguate it from if statements inside something else. Right. You know, just to give it a different keyword so it's a little bit more clear exactly what's going on. Yeah, because when, I mean, my problem is I think in too many different languages. There's lots of languages that use when. I'm trying to think if C-sharp uses when normally. Uh, not at this time. I think that would be a new contextual keyword. All right. And I, oh. haven't, and I haven't seen the um, the notes for that yet. Hmm. You know, and this is, this is one of the things where we're in kind of a weird space right now. Yeah. One of the big things that happened uh, and is still being worked on a little bit as we record this is both the VB and C sharp teams have moved from um, CodePlex to GitHub. Right. And in that shuffle, you know, that's, that's all, you know, moving the code is one thing, but then also moving all the docs, all the design notes, all the issues, all the questions and comments. It's kind of hard to find things right now. And I think they're still in process right now, moving some of those around. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Ah, uh, must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to set var result equals from J in data dot previous jokes where J dot laughs dot count is greater than one. Ampersand ampersand J dot laughs dot first paren paren dot name equals equals quote Richard Campbell. Select J. Oh, through a null reference exception on the object returned by first. <laughs> <laughs> Can you make that was it? a long way to go for a null reference joke, but okay. You're making my point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, now we have one. No, no more null reference exception. Bill there laughed. You go. <laughs> well, anyway, actually, we're doing something a little bit different uh, today. We're going to give away a full pass to the Nebraska Code Camp. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, before I tell you who won today. Uh, let's talk about Nebraska Code Camp. It's a new three-day developer conference in Lincoln, Nebraska, March 19th through the 21st. Richard, you're going to be doing a humanitarian toolbox thing there, I think? Yeah, I think we're figuring out exactly what we're going to be doing, but uh, yeah, that's one of the things in consideration. I think we're going to be recording a few shows as well. Mm-hmm. Richard and I will be there. Also, the workshops include uh, my Xamarin Forms workshop. Yeah, that'll be cool. And this pass gives you access to the workshops, so... So there you go. And we had a ton of fun, not not at the Nebraska Code Camp, but at uh, in in Lincoln and Nebraska uh, in Nebraska when we came through there on the road trip. Right. So uh, that's at nebraskacode.com. Check it out. Absolutely. So who's our winner, dude? Today's winner is Roy Osman. Congratulations, Roy. Yeah, Roy. Golf clap for you. You got yourself a pass to the Nebraska Code Camp. And we'll be there, so you can have a drink with us, too. 
And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we love to give away sponsor products and services. And uh, every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And also, we'd like to ask our guest, Bill, it's your turn. If you had five grand shopping spree, what would you buy? Yeah, I was thinking about this one, and I, I couldn't stay in your budget this time just because of something I saw on the web that was just too cool. Oh. Have, you seen, the, have you seen the Tesla videos with their insane ah, mode? Insane mode. The, uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> insane mode. Insane mode. It's a button that takes you from zero to 60 in three seconds. Yeah. And they te- they have people, they're like, are you ready? Okay, I'm going to press the button. You ready? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. And then, boom! And they're like, holy bleep. <laughs> yeah. If you've never ridden in a Tesla, the problem is it doesn't have any gears. So it's just like the, the hand of God is behind you and just starts pushing and it doesn't stop. Yeah. And I think deeply embedded in our minds when we go that fast is that you're going to have this vicious acceleration right. and then there's going to be a pause while you change gears and then another vicious acceleration. And Tesla's just don't do that. Nope. They just take off like a rocket. Yeah. It's, and so after too long of you still accelerating, you get kind of terrified. Yeah. Well, and, and more than that, the, because it's an electric motor, you don't have the same kind of torque pro- or torque issues you have building torque that you do in a gasoline engine. Yeah. Yeah. You just switch on the, the current and that thing spins. Yeah. You have all the torque all the time. There's a, it is, if you go on YouTube looking and look at like a Tesla, uh, a Tesla D being tested or Tesla S being tested on a dyno, it breaks the dyno because the dyno can't hand, is expecting a torque curve and it doesn't know what to do essentially when there's just no torque curve. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yep. Anyway, that kind of blew your budget, dude. I think that's barely even a down payment yeah, probably, for, that's right. for holding your position in line for a, a P85D. Yeah. yeah, but that's that's still where I want to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm not going to argue with it. I totally get that. Yeah, you know, the PCs and the other things are getting so inexpensive, you know. it's uh, I don't know how to blow 5K in uh, in hardware anymore. Yeah, six hundred ninety-one horsepower in the P eighty-five D. Yeah, and the thing that's disappointing is there's no noise. You know, you yeah. expect there to be a roar. There's a lack of drama. Yeah, you know that. You know that's what my son says. And uh, my son and I went to the Montreal Grand Prix this past summer. Um, you know, and the Mercedes team with um, Rosberg and. Um, Hamilton, the those Mercedes that have the hybrids in them are so quick, they accelerate so fast, but they are so quiet. Mm. You know, and there there's a lot of the fans that are going, you know, it's just not that loud, it's not the same, it's not what we want anymore. It's it's missing it's, the drama. I you know, and, and my son's much more like, you know, I, I want to hear that, I want to hear it. And I'm watching these things and they're so quiet but moving so fast. Right. Um, you know, I had the camera and I was trying to take pictures as the, the Formula One cars are coming around the curve. And the first five shots I took is an empty track. Wow. Because the car's already gone. You know, <laughs> <they are> just, <laughs> You're just not first. fast enough. No. So you sort of start to hear it come in the curve and you, 
you know, start snapping pictures and then you probably catch it. It was, it was a lot of fun. That's funny. So. Well, there you go. Well, where were we? Yep. Um, let's see. We just going to finish talking about the syntax changes, proposed syntax updates to exception filters. So I went back through our other, our other talk in August and there were a few features we didn't cover then that I think are, are definitely worth going over as well this time. And, uh, one of those was the name of feature. Um, okay. So in a lot of our modern software, you know, we have what, what I've heard referred to as stringly typed APIs. Stringly typed? Yes, stringly typed. Not strongly <laughs> typed. Of, right. <laughs> you know, a, a good example here is I notify property changed. Right. Right. You have okay. to raise that event. You have to give it a string that's the value of what changed. You know, similar things happen when we're building JSON objects. You know, I have to have a string to represent the key for the key value pairs and so on. The name of operator, which now takes an expression, I can say, you know, in my I notify property change, I can make new property change event args, this dot last name, and it will replace it with the string last name. And okay. You know, so now I have that niceness where I'm using a symbol rather than a string. And that sounds like, okay, it's just more typing or whatever. But what's really cool about that is now any of the tooling that we have in the IDE respects that name. So if I change the name of the property, any place where I've used name of is also going to change. So all my refactoring tools work now if I use name of instead of just put the last name in in quotes as a hard-coded string. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's something normally like um, Code Rush would do. Right. And now it's a lot easier for tools, whether it be Code Rush or ReSharper or the, just natively in the IDE to look and find those. And if you change the one, it will change every place where you've used that symbol name. Right. Right. So hmm. that's... That, I think, is one of those nice little features that just gets added. That is a nice feature. Yeah. I'd use that. Yep. Smart. And the other one that, I, two other ones that I know we didn't talk about at all, one was uh, parameterless struct constructors, which is a kind of interesting feature that moves works along with some of our auto property initializers and Gitter-only auto properties. Struct is one of those things that gets overlooked a bit, I think, because they are value types. You know, when you make copies, you are copying memory and everything. But they can also work like classes. They can have reference stuff in them, can't they? Yes, right. And then you would copy the reference when you made a copy of the value type. Yeah. So now now what happens, and one of the problems that we've had in a lot of instances is you could write a constructor for a struct type. So let's say I had a person... And I wanted to write a constructor for it. I could write a person that takes the strings for the first name and last name and so on, right? Yeah. But in previous versions of either VB or uh, C Sharp, you could not write a structure, a, a constructor that did not take any parameters and initialize those properties. Wow. Okay. So, so what would happen is anytime you just said new person, you'd get nulls or zeros for any of the uh, properties of that struct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So now you can write a constructor for those 
um, for those struct types that doesn't take parameters that explicitly initializes any of those those values inside. Okay. Okay. But now what's very interesting is that constructor only gets called in certain conditions. So like if you were to say, you know, customer C equals new customer, mm -hmm. now your that parameterless constructor gets called. Okay. okay. But if you were to say customer C equals default that default keyword, you know, type of customer, then it does not call your parameterless constructor. It only just allocates it and sets everything to zero. Hmm. Similarly, if you create an array of customers, you know, an array of 100 customers, it doesn't call the parameterless constructor 100 times. It just initializes everything to zeros for those 100 objects. And then you could explicitly initialize those as you wanted to. So it's a little okay. bit of a tricky feature, but it's it's a way to try to be able to better create immutable struct types and have some syntax support around it, where previously that was really hard to do. All right. So is this, this is going to save me some coding labor long term, right? I build up these structs with these capabilities. I mean, it's basically giving me boundaries on what would go into the structure, right? So I can use it with a, give it to other people and they just can't use it wrong. That's what we hope, right? I mean, ideally, then we've got some default set in place, and yeah. if you've initialized one and and nude it up, it's going to have the default that you wanted rather than the system defined all zeros. Right. But zeros and nulls and blank strings. Right now, you can actually have a set of values. And when, I mean, can you actually go so far as to set constraints on some of those values? So if, even if, if the app is putting something, uh, trying to set it to something, it's going to fight back. Well, there you could do that just with your the logic you would have in your constructor, right? You could right. throw an exception if somebody tried to pass in an invalid first name or invalid social security number or whatever to a, yeah. a person object, right? We could do that. You know, we can do that now, um, but now we could have the defaults for when they don't specify anything. Right. What is it default to? And, right. they, you know, the interesting thing about this is none of this is particularly relevant if you're the only guy right, working on the code base. But as soon as I have a team and I'm trying to follow some standards, this becomes a lot more interesting. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing is, as all of these languages get a little bit more mature is we're finding that the syntactic sugar that we want to add, the things that we want are to make our languages more expressive so that it's easier for the developers to come by reading the code later. Yeah. Right. You know, it's clear what we were trying to do. It's clear what we wanted you to do. And it's clear what we didn't want you to do with this class. Yeah, it's not, not when you wrote it. It's when you need to read it. Yep. That's when this stuff matters. Hey, yep. Bill, what do you think about sealing classes? I, I know people who are like, every class should be sealed. You know, and then I also know that, yeah, if I don't need it to be sealed, why should you, what do you, what do you feel there? Do you think classes should be sealed by default unless they are going to be base classes? You know, I think that's probably a good idea, but I have to admit to being lazy enough to not doing that. Yeah. You know, by adding that extra keyword. Um, you know, I do think it's important to make an explicit decision of is somebody going to derive from this or not. Right. You know, and I think not having any virtual members means I probably didn't intend for this to be a, a base class. So then it might make sense to seal it. But then again, you, you, know, you know, I think that. Well, you know, somebody might have a need to 
subclass this some other time that I'm not anticipating now. So why seal it? Right. And there you get into that really fundamental design decision is should everything be possible as a base class or should it only be those things that you intended somebody to derive from? Yeah. You know, and, and like a good example here is let's say you started to derive from the string class, right? Which is sealed. So you can't do it. And you wanted to add new methods to it. It's too easy in a reference-based type system to pass that derived string to someplace else. Right. Have something happen to it. And inside other code, it's being looked at as a string, not as you know, your derived string class. Yeah, right. And I think there's a lot of fuzziness if you try to inherit from a class that wasn't designed to be inherited from. But yeah, it wasn't intended to be that way. Right. Right. Yeah. You always get there's always in this battle of do I give people enough freedom to do whatever creative thing they think of, or do I keep them inside the boundary so they don't hurt themselves, or me? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's ultimately my code that's going to fail. Yeah. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons I like extension methods is yeah. You know, you can take something like string and go. You know, there's methods I really wish were here that I can implement on what's already defined in the string class. Yep. And now they just act like they're part of the string class. You know, my string extensions or, you know, similarly for other types, I might have extensions on window types or whatever I that just extensions. make my life easier Yeah. or my team's life easier. And I don't have to worry about inheritance issues. It just kind of acts like it's part of this. Yeah. I think there's there are good ways to extend the types that we're given without saying, gee, I wish I could inherit from this and do all these and, and do all kinds of other stuff. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Turns out inheritance isn't all that necessary in most you know, business apps. And also, I think this is one of the things that's really changing over the past, say, five years. Although, you know, in some languages are ahead of others here. We've reached this point now as we're building more and more distributed systems and systems that run on multiple machines and communicate with different machines that object orientedness may not be the best solution all the time. Right. You know, we're talking more about, we've got data types that we transfer across the wire. So, but we're not transferring the behavior across the wire. We're just transferring the data. And then we have implementations both in JavaScript and C sharp to run on the client and do client things or on Mm. the server and do server things and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's, I think, related to seeing more functional constructs in languages where data is one thing and manipulations and modifying or mutating and creating new data is functions and they are another thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're seeing some different, th- different constructs and different idioms showing up because we're now writing programs that run on more than one machine at a time. I, th- I thought we pretty much came to the conclusion that the only part of object orientation we all really agreed on was encapsulation. There's right. some arguments for polymorphism, but generally speaking, inheritance is a mistake. Well, we unless do, you need we, it, you, right? I mean, the .NET framework clearly relies on inheritance. But if you're not building, you know, like if you're not building a or a uh, adapter pattern or something like that, you know, there are there are places for it, but it's not for everything. Yeah. And, and and a much more consumable concept is composability. Yeah. Right. And I think, 
you know, object-orientedness works for certain classes of problems, but not for all of them. Right. And as an industry, we certainly went through this phase that lasted about 15 years where everything was an object and everything was inheritance. Yep, um, we did. And I think we've seen that, that that's not true. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. I didn't mean to derail you there, but that was a good no, conversation to have. The derailments are actually more fun. <laughs> <laughs> What's better betterness? <laughs> better betterness is uh, colloquialism. Uh, so what what has happened over over time in the language is there's a section of the spec that deals with overload resolution. And so let's say I call, you know, some object dot um, method and I pass it four or five parameters. The compiler now has to figure out which method of some name should that resolve to. And as features were added to the language, the way in which the compiler figured out which method was better than other methods started to get very, very complicated. It actually starts out reasonably complicated and it just gets worse. And then when you start adding extension methods and inheritance and things that might be implemented in interfaces and things that might be implemented explicitly in interfaces and things in base classes, things in derived classes, things where the parameters might be derived classes or base classes or might involve conversions. It gets pretty crazy. Hmm. So the official name for the feature is improved overload resolution. So what the team did is it worked on really looking at the whole space of the language as it exists today and re re-express those rules so that they're hopefully a little bit more clear. Re-expressed. Right. Yeah. So now in instead of adding new things to the spec because we added extension methods and adding new things to the spec because we added dynamic and adding new things to the spec because we added lambdas, it's now taking all of those things together and writing that section just once with all of those things in it. Um, places where you will probably see it in practice is where you're converting a method group name to a lambda, it will probably just work. And before it might say, uh, this is ambiguous. And I'm not sure what it's ambiguous with, but I'm pretty sure it's ambiguous. Hmm. You know, so <laughs> you'll see some things like that. It's um, ambiguity also, is ambiguous. <laughs> right. And if you read that section of the spec, it now starts to read much more clear about where methods are found and which method may be better than another method. So I think that's, and that just sort of clarifies a lot of things. And, and you know, the way Mads puts it is, without going into everything, you'll just see features work better than they used to. Better betterness. Better betterness. It's <laughs> awesome. C Sharp 5 didn't have better betterness. Mm -mm. No, no. 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 <laughs> C Sharp 5 still had original betterness. Now with IJW technology. Uh, how about IJWB? It just works better. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah. That's cool stuff, man. Yeah, very cool. Um, bring me up to speed, guys, on the humanitarian toolbox. What's the latest? Probably fundraising is getting to be our biggest activity right now. And well, we're a real charity now, right? So yeah. Real charity. Have, we, we can really fundraise. And uh, 
starting to do some of that is going to give us the means to solve the problems we want to solve this year, where we're going to be picking up uh, several new applications. Um, we're starting to get real enough. We're having more frequent conversations with our partners in the humanitarian space because they actually expect us to deliver things now. We've been around long enough, and we've actually done that a few times. So they... I, I also, you know, you and I got into this thinking we would write original, so lots of original software that had never been written. And I, I'm finding more and more as we're talking deeply to these disaster relief NGOs, they've written the software. They just don't know what to do with it now. Hmm. Right. So and integrating big, more? Um, not so much integrating, maybe more productizing. You know, hey, we wrote this software after an earthquake with one dude who was sitting in a tent. Yeah. Can you maintain it? I see. And the answer is, it's going to take a little work, but I like the idea of having software that wasn't written in a tent that's ready for the next disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So the next guy in the tent doesn't have to write it. He just turns it on. Right. And people can still get involved and go to hackathons and things and, and help out? Absolutely. Um, start at htbox.org, and there's a link to our GitHub page there, or just search for htbox on GitHub, and you'll find any of the existing apps. And... Uh, Watch htbox.org for announcements as we are picking up and launching new applications in the next month or two. Yeah. So I mean, what's happening now is we're getting opportunities to take over or take on apps, make them properly open source, and then contribute to them from there. So we're not really starting from scratch with a lot of these things. They have effectively a first version or call it a minimal viable product. Yeah. It's been used at least once. And now there's all these other things that could be done to it. And how do we generalize it so it can be used in more cases? All right. And we can go pull, make a pull request and start hacking away? Or do you do yep. any vetting? Or what's that story? Nope, absolutely. So um, make a pull request, start hacking away. What I would suggest is on any of the projects, look at the issues, some of which are bugs, some of which are feature requests. Um Depending on how experienced you are and how quick you are diving into a new code base, uh, we use a label called jump in, which is, you know, hey, this is the first time you've even looked at this code. This is hopefully something that's reasonably small in scope. So you only have to understand one part of the code. You know, and, and again, some of those are bugs. Some of those are features. And, uh, you know, get your feet wet, make a pull request. And change the world. That's right. Yeah. Right. And if you don't want to write some code or that's not what you want to do, we can use a few dollars so that we can uh, help pay for pizza for other devs and uh, get involved with other events that will move this ball forward. Do you guys have a easy way for people to contribute? Why, yes, we do. There's a donate button right on the Humanitarian Toolbox site. I'll include the links in the show notes. That's awesome. All right, guys, that's a show, I think. I, I think agree. so. There's, there's one last thing that I'll add that we forgot to mention on oh. P-Trip 6. Okay. They, uh, the Elvis operator now has an official name. <laughs> Elvis operator. So if you look at the uh, question mark dot operator. Okay. Is, uh, how it's spelled. It's officially called the null conditional operator. And the reason it was given the colloquial name of the Elvis operator is because if you look at it and squint just a little bit, it looks like two eyeballs with a whole cloth of hair on top. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, ho, ho. <laughs> yep. and with that i'll say uh thank you thank right. you very much for inviting me again well thanks for coming bill it's been great talking to you as always 
right. Have a great day, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got to transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.